Friends, long time no see. <laughs> Haven't seen you for about two Sundays, I think. Um, two Sundays ago, we went on a mission trip to Kapit, uh, the lighthouse, lighthouse of hope in Kapit. Yeah, so I was away that Sunday, and so happens that probably on the flight back, uh, I, I came back with more than just stories of Kapit. <laughs> came back with COVID. So, um, yeah, after three years of dodging COVID, uh, finally, finally got it. Um, but thank you to all of you who have been praying for me. Um, I initially, I didn't have any smell or taste, uh, even after I recovered. And I'm thinking, oh no, I heard the stories of nine months, no smell, no taste. But just this morning, um, my, my dog did something in the house and yeah, my sense of smell is working okay. <laughs> Come, let's pray. Lord, we look to you this morning and we ask that you open up your word for us in the ways that you desire to convict, the ways that you desire to bring transformation. Lord, will you do your work in our hearts? So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, Lord, be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, have you ever been asked to Choose your medicine. Uh, what does this mean? I vaguely remember last time uh, when I was much younger, uh, whenever I, some, okay, not all the time, but sometimes when I did something wrong, uh, my dad would ask me to choose my medicine. Uh, and did any, any of your parents ever ask you to do this? Choose your medicine? No? Uh, oh, God, huh? <laughs> I think Amos knows what I'm talking about. Uh, when, when I was asked to, to choose my medicine, my parents were basically, that's quote, my parents are asking me to choose my own punishment. Lah. Okay. Uh, whether I want to be disciplined by, so they gave me two options. Do I want to be disciplined by my dad or disciplined by my mom? Okay, so those are the two options. And it's, uh, I didn't always get this option, but when I did, uh, it was a pretty difficult decision to, for me to make because Disciplined by my mom, disciplined by my dad. Both also use physical discipline. One, so my mom would use a cane. How many of you are familiar with a cane? Gonna cane before? Uh, this this long object brings terror to your hearts, right? Uh, and and my dad would whack with his hand. Okay, so my mom would use the cane on my hand, yeah, which stings like crazy, right? Because it's so small and it's so. You know, it, it whips very fast. Uh, my dad will whack my backside with his hand, and he's quite a strong guy, lah. So it's not just it's pa, you know, that kind. So it, it's it would result in a very very sore backside <laughs> every time I sit down. And, and so between these two choices, I are very difficult. So I would usually end up choosing my dad smacking because he would end up having mercy on me. Uh, got, when you whack with your hand, uh, there's feedback. You know how hard you're hitting. And why we're keen, uh, it's, you, know, you, don't, you don't feel it. Uh. Not, not that my mom abused me. Uh. <laughs> let, me let me make that clear. Uh, but but I, would, I would choose my dad because uh, okay, he, he would have mercy. He wouldn't smack so hard. Sometimes he'll like, before he's going to smack, uh, you don't do again. Uh. Okay, then let me go. <laughs> so, but but the, the cane on the other hand, ayo, I, I tell you how much I hated the cane. Uh, not just painful, uh, the sound of it itself can strike fear into your heart. Uh, of the, the sound of the king whipping through the air. Uh, 
Uh, I tell you a little story. I, I hated the cane so much that one day I was so angry at, at uh, the cane, not just at my parents, but angry at the cane, that I went around the house and I gathered all the canes I could find. There were quite a lot. Uh, I, I gathered all of them and then we had this rocking horse. I, I don't, last time I got rocking horse. Uh, and, and the rocking horse had this tail that you could detach. And inside the rocking horse is hollow. So I, I put all the canes inside there to try and hide it. Uh, not very smart because you can imagine the sound they made when it rocked. Uh. So my mom found out. Uh, I don't know what happened after that. Maybe I blacked out. Uh. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just remember hating the cane with a passion. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I, I just, this, this comes back to me because I was just thinking of how David was asked to, to uh, choose his punishment between three choices. And so that's, that's something that David went through. Uh, he did something wrong, David told, uh, God told him, choose your medicine. Now, from today's passage, the takeaway message that I hope for us to get is that God is sovereign and that He provides for the redemption of our sins. So if we forget everything, this is the one thing to remember. God is sovereign and He provides for the redemption of our sins. Now, today happens to be the last of our series on 2 Samuel. So if you have just joined us uh, recently and uh, you didn't know we're on a series of 2 Samuel, congratulations, you're joining us uh, at, at the very end, so you don't miss it. Uh, we are near the end of David's life and reign over Israel, but we won't actually cover the transition from David to his son Solomon, because that comes in uh, the next book of Israel's history, which is First Kings. Uh, and after we get back from our church camp, uh, we'll be diving into another book, okay? The, the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And we'll see how the, the covenant and promises that God made to David uh, would come into fruition through Jesus. Uh, we last looked at the civil war between David and his son Absalom. And just, just to very, give a very quick uh, summary of the, the things that have been happening. And so that, that uh, rebellion by Absalom against David will be followed by another rebellion uh, by a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Sheba. And this rebellion would divide the north and the south, okay, the northern ten tribes, uh, eleven tribes in fact, uh, from the southern tribe of Judah. And Sheba would be killed and the people would be united under David again. Okay, but that is just a taste, a foreshadowing of what would happen uh, when the kingdom finally divides quite permanently uh, after Solomon's reign. So after this rebellion uh, by Sheba is, is quelled, there's a famine that comes about as a consequence of the Israelites breaking their vow to spare the Gibeonites. Now, if you remember from the period of, uh, you know, when, when the Israelites were taking possession of the promised land, they were deceived by this group of people called the Gibeonites uh, into making a treaty with them. The Gibeonites pretended, oh, we're from very far away, you know, uh, and so 
we are no threat to you. And so the, the Israelites didn't consult God and they just went ahead, made a treaty with them. So they were bound by an oath to basically um, ally with the Gibeonites. And King Saul broke this oath. He tried to wipe them out. And so the uh, famine comes upon Israel as a result. And the Gibeonites are consulted. How do they want to make things right? And they ask for the lives of seven of Saul's descendants. So after paying that price, God answers, the famine is stopped. Okay, so that's another major episode that happens in the story of 2 Samuel. After that, David almost gets killed in a battle with the Philistines. And then the rest of the chapter uh, are like an epilogue of sorts for the book of 2 Samuel. David sings a song of, uh, a song of praise. His last words are recorded. And there's a list of his mighty warriors. Hey, all the, the, the elite men that he had. And then comes the passage that was read to us just now. So today's passage is really the, the very end, the very tail end of the book of 2 Samuel. The book started with 1 Samuel. Remember, there's no division in the, the Hebrew scriptures. So the book started with Hannah and the birth of Samuel, which we went through last year. And then it follows the nation of Israel as it transitions from a very chaotic uh, nation ruled by judges to a united monarchy okay, under King Saul. And then the story shifts over to David and his very humble beginnings to where we are today. So today, we, we see that the journey has brought Israel to, to become a very powerful nation and the period of David and Solomon's rule, this is like the height, the peak of Israel's power. And so Solomon's time is considered Israel's uh, period of greatest prosperity in terms of uh, peace and success and all that. But David's time is when Israel is most in sync with God since the days of Joshua. But we didn't just see the rise of David. We also saw his moral failures, his weaknesses. And the big one, of course, was his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite to try and cover it up. But that wasn't the only failure, the only sin of David. That's the major one that we think of, right? Today is another rare instance where we are clearly told that David sinned. And so let's take a look at this sin. It revolves around a census. In today's passage, we see David giving Joab and his army commanders an order to go and take a census. Now, how many of you in the year 2020 filled out a census, e-census? Got a the rest of you who didn't, you broke the law, you know. <laughs> Supposed to fill it out. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, that, that's like uh, the, the census that we fill out for the government is like a, a survey. La, okay. They give you a survey uh, for you to feedback, to give the government data on housing population statistics in the nation. Okay. So this census that David commanded uh, is not the same kind of census as the, the one that we've, we filled out. Uh, the, the census that David commanded had two main purposes. Sorry, censuses in general. 
uh, back then, had two main purposes. And the first purpose was for taxation. In the book of Exodus, part of the law that is given to the Israelites was to ensure that each person who was counted during the census would give an, uh, a half-shekel offering as atonement to the Lord. So this is a bit of a, a, like a temple tax before the temple was built. Nah. Okay, and so the, the census was accompanied with, okay, give an offering okay, for every person who is counted. So there is nothing sinful in taking a census in itself, okay, because the law of Moses uh, provides for it. So that's the first main purpose, this uh, taxing, this, this uh, getting an offering or getting a text uh, from everybody who is counted. But the second main purpose of taking a census during that day was to enlist or to draft an army. And so this seems to be David's main purpose according to verse 2. The, the king told Joab and his commanders, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Bathsheba, enroll the fighting men, okay? Or uh, count the fighting men, but it's basically enrolling them. Now, even though the king had a standing army, that means an army that is always trained, ready to go at any time, he had a standing army of about 30,000 men. He was able to call upon the 11 tribes, uh, not the, the tribe of Levi, uh, to send men for war whenever the need arose. Okay, so he, he could basically summon all men who can fight. Okay, go for war defend the nation, uh, whatever. However, in today's passage, there isn't any real occasion to raise an army. Uh, the, the order to enroll the fighting men is simply for David because he, he, sukala, he wants to know how many there are. In other words, so that he would know what sort of military strength he had at his disposal. When he counts, then he knows, oh, this is the size of my army. This is how powerful uh, it, my, my, the, the nation that I'm governing is. And so after almost 10 months, Joab and the army commanders returned with a report that they had 1.3 million men who could fight for David. And then, verse 10, David was conscience-stricken. And so, verse 10 tells us two things. Firstly, that this enrolling of men into the military was a sin against God. Secondly, that David realized that he had messed up when the number was reported to him. Why? Why was this a sin? Why, how did David mess up in ordering this? Now, there are a few possible reasons for this. One possibility is that the census was not done according to instructions. Okay? Uh, for each person, we, we saw earlier in the book of Exodus, right? when you do a census, each person is supposed to offer up half-shekel offering for each person who is counted. Uh, and then it, it basically says, if you don't do that, a plague will hit you. Okay? And we know that uh, the punishment that David Kana was a plague. So maybe... Maybe when he ordered the census, this instruction wasn't carried out, and so uh, that, that is the reason. Another possibility 
is that the census is initiated by David and not God. Now, in those days, you only took a census to count whatever belonged to you. If it didn't belong to you, you don't count it, right? Because it's not yours. And the previous two censuses that are recorded in the Bible before this one that David orders are in the book of Numbers. And that is initiated by God. God is the one who, who basically orders for the census. So David ordering a census might be him seeing that the, the might of Israel is his to will. That is his nation rather than him being a steward of a nation that belongs to God because that is what the king of Israel is supposed to be, uh, leading the people for God, okay? And that the, the nation actually belongs to God. One last possibility is that David's instruction to, to do a census is driven by his pride. Now, just before the passage that was read to us today, uh, chapter 24, there's a list of David's mighty men like I mentioned earlier, his elite warriors, 30 over, and a, a, a whole bunch of their extraordinary exploits and accounts. Uh, they go and fight this giant, la, they go and stand up to this army, la, one person can wipe out a whole battalion, whatever, that kind of thing. And so, there is that record of this is how powerful David's small personal bodyguard is. Can you imagine the rest of the army? And so it was also not unusual back then for emperors to display the extent of their rule, to display their power by taking a census of their total empire. Okay? Partly for tax purposes, like we saw earlier, but also to show off, look, my empire got how many, how many, how many million people. Uh, one interesting thing about this command that David gives is how Joab reacts to it. Joab is like his uh, commander-in-chief. Joab is clearly uncomfortable with the request, or rather the command, to go and take a census. In verse 3, he asks David, in verse 3, he asks David, why does the king want to do such a thing? And what's interesting is that when I studied this, this text, uh, the, the original Hebrew, the literal Hebrew word is not just why does the, the, the king want to do such a thing, it is why does the king delight in doing such a thing? There is a, a parallel account of the same episode in First Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Chronicles chapter 21 that we'll look at more soon. Uh, but in this record, this version of events, Joab, it, it specifies that Joab found this command repulsive. Okay? And so we put those two things together, that David delighted in giving this command, and Joab found it repulsive. Possibly, quite possibly, that there was this boastful pride in David as he was giving this command. Uh, we, we don't know for sure, but whatever it is, it's clear that David's motives are not good and Joab reacts. And so those are the three most likely possibilities. Yeah? Uh, we, we don't have more insight into why this command was so sinful, 
but maybe census not done according to instruction. Uh, maybe census initiated by David instead of God. Maybe census motivated by pride. But whatever the reason, we see that David realizes his wrongdoing. And so God sends a prophet named Gad to confront David. And David is given the option, choose your medicine. Right? Uh, these three things, famine, uh, sword, or plague, which one you want. And David basically says, God, you choose. Uh, but, but I know, God, you are more merciful than humans, so you do the punishing. Don't use other humans to do the punishing. A bit like me telling my parents, uh, I don't care who punishes me, just don't use the cane. <laughs> okay? So God sends a plague for three days that wipes out 70,000 people. And at the end of that, David is grieved because even though he is the one who, who, who sinned, he gave the, the command and sinned, his people were the ones who paid the price. Okay, three quick things that we can learn from David's sin. Firstly, that sin is judged by God's standards, not the world's. At first glance, this is quite a weird story. Like before, I, 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 if you take away the past, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, uh, the census doesn't really make sense. It's, it's innocent, right? The census seems to be very innocent. If you take God out of the equation, you take away the fact that Israel belonged to God, David is just doing what any other king in the world would have done. But David wasn't just any other king, and Israel wasn't just any other nation. They were called to be holy and set apart from the other nations around them, to be distinct, to be different. And so morality is defined by God, not what the rest of the world is doing. There are many things that don't seem to be anything wrong today if we just looked at what the rest of the world was doing. Love for money, uh, sex without marriage uh, between a man and a woman. If you just look at these things, nothing very wrong if you only look at what the rest of the world is doing. Uh, maybe it's even something to be celebrated something to be proud of in some cultures. Oh, that you're so driven by your love for money that you will sacrifice so much to earn so much. Or that, oh, you, you, uh, marriage is just a piece of paper. Uh, it's, it's not, never mind, as long as you love each other, you don't need to get married, you can do whatever you want. But we are called to be holy, not according to what the rest of the world is doing, but according to God and His standards. Whatever He re reveals in His Word, whatever He uh, has clearly taught us. So, sin is judged by God's standards, not what the rest of the world is doing. Secondly, the importance, second lesson we can learn, the importance of having spiritual community and being accountable to them. Uh, Joab isn't the most exemplary character in the Bible. He is a very flawed individual. He's impulsive, he's violent, he's... Uh, you know, not very honest, uh, but David is also a flawed individual. And so in this particular moment here, Joab is a voice of wisdom for David. And this is only possible because Joab is part of Israel, 
a nation belonging to God. He is part of David's spiritual community in this sense. Unfortunately, even though Joab gave David wisdom, David put rank. <laughs> he said, you know, go ahead. Okay, so, so he was not accountable to Joab. But if he had listened to him, he could have avoided the deaths of 70,000 Israelites. Third thing we can learn from David's sin, the communal impact of sin, especially for leaders and people of influence. Even though we are personally accountable to God for our own sins and not the sins of our ancestors, so you know, we, are, we are not paying the price for whatever our grandfather did and all that, but the consequences of our sins often affect others, especially those within our sphere of influence. So if we are leading a family, if we are a father and we are leading a family, our sins will affect our family. If we are leading a church, I'm a pastor, I'm leading a church, my sin will affect the church. Uh, if we are leading a, a company and we're CEO and we, you know, the, the sin of corruption, bribery or whatever, it will also impact the company. And so although sin is often selfish and we, we're only thinking of ourselves when we sin, the effects of our sin are often far-reaching. They go beyond just us. So three quick lessons that we can learn from David's sin. Next thing I want us to look at is what role God plays in all of this. At first glance, today's passage is uh, not just very weird because it's a census, it's about census, but today's passage puts God in a very confusing light because in verse 1, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So if you just read this, it sounds like God was angry at Israel. Because he was angry at Israel, he made David order a census, and then David got into trouble, and God punished the people of Israel for David's sin. And if that's the whole story, then it doesn't sound very fair, right? God is the one who orders for it. God is the one who punishes, even though he asks for it. You know? So it doesn't sound very fair. But here is why it is important to know your Bible and not just read one verse, one passage. Uh, not just your, your favorite stories and your favorite passages, but to read the Bible from cover to cover with a Bible in one year reading plan if you have not tried already, okay? Uh, because if you read through the Bible, you'll find, eh, this is not the only time this story is mentioned. So just now I mentioned very quickly, right? First Chronicles chapter 21, there's a parallel account, meaning that it's almost mirrored is almost like a repetition, but there are different things that can give us more insight into it. Sometimes, uh, if we just read, it seems similar, but then there are differences. Uh, we think, the first thing we think is, eh, contradiction. The Bible is contradicting itself. Uh, actually, it's not true one. See, one person wrote something, one person wrote the other thing. But actually, those two accounts are always held in harmony. They are just presented from different perspectives, highlighting different things. So in this particular account, parallel account, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, same story, 
Verse 1 goes like this. So, uh, wait, before that, the passage today, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, uh, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, go and take a census. Okay? So the parallel account, First Chronicles chapter 21, says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So now we have another character involved, Satan. Hebrew word for Satan basically means an adversary. So this is not, uh, it, it can be a human adversary. It can also be the devil, okay? Uh, God's adversary. And since David, uh, sorry, since Satan is already introduced in the book of Job as the, the source of uh, Job's suffering, it is likely that this is the Satan that the writer of Chronicles is referring to. So now we ha have a, a problem. Who incited David? God or Satan? One way of looking at this is that God is sovereign over all, including sin and suffering. Okay, so if you think of God as sovereign over everything, big umbrella, underneath his sovereignty and underneath his sovereign will is sin and suffering that happens. And so all evil and suffering that ever happens, God is actually in control because he is sovereign. Okay, there's nothing that does not happen without his permission. He permits evil and suffering to happen. He's not the source. He doesn't cause it, but he still has control over it. So no evil or suffering happens without God's permission. Of course, that brings us to the question of why a good and sovereign God allows evil and suffering in this world. But that is part of a larger topic that we don't have time to get into. If you're curious about this topic, uh, there's a, a book by Philip Yancey on disappointment with God. And he tackles some of these questions. Uh, good read. Go, go have a look if you're curious. Uh, this is one of the more difficult questions in, in the Christian faith, okay? And there are different people who try to approach it in different ways. Okay, but basically, uh, we, we, we don't have time to deal with this, this topic, but if you, if you wrestle with it, go read up on it. Okay, uh, the, the key word, I mentioned this before, lah, but the key word is theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. Why does a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? Okay, but coming back to God's sovereignty, He is in absolute control. At the same time, He allows Satan to do what He does. So Satan is not running amok, more powerful than God, do what He wants. No, He is operating within God's sovereign control. Uh, limitations of God's sovereignty. And so that's essentially what we see in the book of Job. Job suffers at Satan's hands, but God remains sovereign throughout. And he does not allow Satan, at first he does not allow Satan to harm Job in any way, to even touch him. And then after that, he does not allow Satan to take Job's life. Okay, so it's still within God's uh, sovereignty. And so because of this, 
God's sovereignty and evil and suffering and, and Satan working within those limitations, uh, in the Hebrew mindset, God is so sovereign, His sovereignty is so complete that what He permits is also considered to be something that He commits. You get what I'm saying? In the he- within the Hebrew understanding, just because God has control over it and He allows it to happen even though He's not the source, He is considered like the source. Okay? So, He permits it equals He commits it. So, they don't, they don't make that distinguishing factor of whether God is the originator of this evil or not. We know, James chapter 1, verse 13, tells us very clearly, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. So we know that God is not the source of temptation. God is not the source of evil. But for the Hebrews, that distinction is not always made. Okay? So, like how Satan was the source of Job's suffering within God's sovereignty, in the same way, Satan is the source of David's temptation to order this census within God's sovereignty. But there is a big difference in motive. Very big difference in motive. God allows things that we don't always like. He allows things that we don't always understand for purposes that we don't always see. But those are always good and just purposes, consistent with His character. So God's motives are always good. He allows us to go through suffering, evil, whatever, always go for good purposes ultimately. Satan, on the other hand, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He, even if he, it's just a temporary victory against the world and against God's people, he, he just wants to wreak havoc, right? And so there's a very big difference between God and Satan in their motives. So if we read 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 again with the parallel account in mind, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you can see Satan is doing the inciting within God's sovereignty. And so, friends, we need to be conscious that while God is sovereign, His character remains good and fair. Sin and suffering is always the result of man's choices. It's always self-willed. And while God doesn't always give us the full picture of everything that's going on, we can still trust Him to be in control. And that is a good thing. The fact that God is in control over everything that's happening, that is still a good thing because His character remains good and just. So God isn't setting David up for failure. He is using David's failure for a larger purpose that maybe David did not see at that point. What is that possible purpose? Uh, one possibility is that God's judgment of the census, you know, by saying, okay, you, you have taken this census, uh, now give you a plague, so you stop, uh, is actually a mercy for David in the sense that it convicted David and led to repentance before he can go further down the road. Think about it. It is very possible that if David had not been convicted of his sin, he had not been confronted by the prophet Gad, uh, there was no judgment of plague. What is the next step? Count all the fighting men already. 1.3 million 
fighting men at your disposal. What is the next step? Since he was the dominant military power at that point, perhaps he might have had ambitions for more, to have ambitions of conquest beyond the promised land, just like the kings of the nations around him. Maybe. But another purpose can be seen after God mercifully restrains the, the plague's destruction uh, at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, and he sends the prophet Gad to give David instructions to build an altar because that points forward to something else. Now, the, the Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, Arauna own land that is identified as being Mount Moriah. So this is actually the site where Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his son Isaac all those years back. And so David is instructed to build an altar to the Lord on Arauna's threshing floor. A threshing floor is like a flat piece of land uh, where the grain of the wheat is separated from the chaff Okay, by being stepped on by animals or by being whacked by sticks or whatever. Okay, so it's a, a place where grain is separated. So David goes to Arauna to offer to buy his threshing floor so he can build the altar. And Arauna tells him, Hey, boss, it's okay, la, no need to pay. Okay, he says, you, you just take what you want. Uh, to build the offering, come, I even provide the offering for you. Okay, I provide you the, the oxen, I provide you the wood, I will chop up my equipment and give you for burnt offering. And David replies, no. Okay, he basically insists on paying him. Uh, the First Chronicles 21 account tells us that David didn't just buy the threshing floor, he buys the whole site. Okay. So he didn't just pay 50 shekels of silver for the threshing floor. He bought the whole thing for 600 gold shekels. Okay? Now this is important because the first Chronicles account, chapter 21, continues on into David's preparations for the temple. You see, Arauna's threshing floor would be the, eventually it would be, become the site for God's temple to be built by King Solomon. This is where the temple of the Lord would be built, Arauna's threshing floor. And so this sacrifice made by David, it, sacrifice, uh, it, it satisfies God's judgment at this point. The plague stops, right? And so there's, there's a picture of man giving an offering and the judgment is stopped. Through this episode, David experiences God as a merciful God. He provides a way for him to be redeemed from his sin. This is a foreshadowing to the sacrificial system of atonement that will be set up in the temple there, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross to atone for the sins of mankind. So this all points forward, points forward, points forward to Jesus. Uh, one thing I find interesting is that David refused Arona's offer to provide the site, the materials for the sacrifice, because if the construction of the altar and burning meat, chasu, is all that God wanted, 
then it doesn't make a difference whether David paid the price or not, right? If all God wanted was an altar with meat burning on it, then whoever's meat it is or whoever's altar, whoever uh, owns the, the thing doesn't matter. But I think this is why David is remembered as man after God's heart. Once again, we see his posture, his response to his own sin and failing. It is a posture of humble, sincere, heartfelt repentance. Contrast this with Saul. When Saul was rejected for his disobedience, how did he react? At first, he's like, oh no, don't reject me, don't reject me. And then finally, he accepted, okay, fine, you've rejected me. The next thing he did was he asked Samuel, come back with me. Come back with me so that I can continue to worship God and be honoured by the people around me. Okay, so he wanted to keep up the appearance of worshipping the Lord in front of the people. In today's passage, we see that David genuinely wants to worship God with burnt offerings that come from him. You see, the very nature of a burnt offering is to totally destroy something so it cannot be used for something else. It is uh, completely giving up something of value to you, for God's sake. It's not just burning rubbish, huh? is burning something valuable to you. Uh, not to repurpose it or put it to a good cause. Once something is burned, it's destroyed forever. And so if David made an offering that didn't cost him anything, it literally is not a sacrifice. It would be an empty ritual performed with somebody else's sacrifice. But David knew God's heart. At this moment of repentance, he knew what God wanted heartfelt worship, heartfelt sacrifice. And so friends, when God gave up His only Son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins, it was not an empty ritual that did not cost Him anything. It cost Him His one and only Son. Imagine, put yourself there, don't think about a resurrection three days later and all that. You just put yourself in the moment of the crucifixion watching your only son whom you love dearly dying a horrible death. It was a sacrifice that cost him everything. And so friends, if Jesus paid the ultimate cost so we could be forgiven of our sins, so we could once again be holy as he is holy, point of reflection for us, how have we responded to God's ultimate sacrifice? How have we responded? Not in order to earn anything, but as a response of gratitude with a life of worship. How have we responded? If you've not considered this question before, I'd like you to think about it uh, now. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? What does it cost you to follow Jesus? Or is following Jesus just a happy coincidence that's just very convenient with how you're already living your life? And if your life is an offering to God, is it more of an empty ritual? Or is it a costly sacrifice? What does it cost you to follow Jesus? Is your life as an offering to God more of an empty ritual or a costly sacrifice? 
Now, this past half of the year, we've been following David, man after God's own heart. And his life serves as inspiration, serves as warning, serves as comfort all at once. We may not be David, but we can learn from not just his life, but his heart, his heart for God. And so, friends, I'd like you to know that God is sovereign and He provides for the redemption of our sins, even if we don't always see or understand His purposes in our failures. He's always giving us a way back to Him. I'd like you to be a follower of Jesus who identifies with His self-sacrificial nature. How much does it cost you to follow Jesus? And do watch out for temptation to sin. Remain in spiritual community. Remain accountable to your spiritual community. Judge sin by God's standards, not the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sorry, just one more slide. Yeah. Uh, for your discussion or reflection within your small groups or your families, Three questions. Who is your spiritual community? How are you accountable to them? Second, how do you respond when you don't understand why God has or hasn't done or allowed something? And thirdly, how costly has it been for you to follow Jesus? Has this cost gone, gone up or down recently? Okay, so points of reflection and discussion.